Why do you support refugees? I support refugees because my family were refugees. I support refugees because we are all God's children and we all deserve a safe place to grow in God's love. I support refugees because God made us all in God's image. I support refugees because I am a legal guardian of a minor asylee named Carol from Burundi. I support refugees because my Lord was a refugee. Because I welcome and I love my neighbor. Hi, and welcome to Hometown, a podcast from Episcopal Migration Ministries. I'm Kendall Martin, and today we are bringing you a bonus episode. This bonus episode is a recording from the December 5th webinar, Mapping the Way, Tools for the Journey. This webinar is the first in a series of three webinars called Walking and Welcome, an Advent series with Episcopal Migration Ministries. Hosted in conjunction with the Office of Government Relations, this webinar provides the current state of play in refugee resettlement, a brief exploration of how to assess community gifts and assets, guidance on communicating the message of welcome, and next advocacy steps for supporting the work of refugee ministry. We hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Allison Duval, and I'm the manager for church relations and engagement for Episcopal Migration Ministries. And my name is Lacey Bromell, and I'm the refugee and immigration policy advisor in the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations, coming to you from D.C. And I'm Kendall Martin. I'm the communications manager for Episcopal Migration Ministries. Let us begin with a prayer. A moment for grace, a prayer for refugees. God of our wandering ancestors, Long have we known that your heart is with the refugee, that you were born into time in a family of refugees, fleeing violence in their homeland, who then gathered up their hungry child and fled into alien country. Their cry, your cry, resounds through the ages. Will you let me in? Give us hearts that break open when our brothers and sisters turn to us with that same cry. Then surely all these things will follow. Ears will no longer turn deaf to their voices. Eyes will see a moment for grace instead of a threat. Tongues will not be silenced, but will instead advocate. And hands will reach out, working for peace in their homeland, working for justice in the lands where they seek safe haven. Lord, protect all refugees in their travels. May they find a friend in me, and so make me worthy of the refuge I have found in you. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Kendall. So we're so glad to be joining with all of you today and wanted to start by talking about why we're all here. To put it simply, I'm here and I hope you're here because you care about refugees and you want to welcome them to your community as your neighbors. And importantly, if you've been keeping up with the news the past few months and years, you know that a lot is going on with refugees and with refugee resettlement. So we want to know the updates and we want to learn how we can make a difference. As you'll hear from Lacey later, U.S. policy towards refugees and resettlement and immigration issues more generally has drastically changed under the Trump administration. And these changes have negatively impacted refugees, immigrants, the communities where they live, organizations that help them. And the changes also mean that we have to get more creative, more innovative, and even more committed to welcoming than we ever have been before. That's what today's conversation is going to be about how we need to be welcomers in this current environment. To start that conversation, we need to share with you some important developments that occurred just this past Friday. On November 30th, the Department of State Bureau for Population, Refugees, and Migration, which is the lead agency for the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, 
informed the nine national resettlement agencies that all nine agencies would receive reception and placement contracts for fiscal year 2019. So what does this mean? Well, on its face, this might appear a positive decision for EMM and for our colleague agencies. However, there is more than meets the eye. Despite having received RNP contracts, EMM and the other national agencies will be forced to close more local RMP programs. Some background, and Lacey will talk more about this later, so I'll do this quickly. For fiscal year 2019, the year that we're currently in, the Trump administration set the refugee admission ceiling at 30,000 entrants. This is a historic low for the program following on a year of the previously historic low of 45,000 entrants, where we welcomed less than half of that number. These decisions have had devastating impacts both globally and domestically. Domestically, the Trump administration's policy decisions have contributed to the dismantling of the national infrastructure of this humanitarian program. The national agencies have already been forced to close local programs. EMM's own resettlement network decreased from 31 local partners at the end of 2016 to 14 partners at the end of 2018. So what happens now? The national agencies have been asked by PRM, by the Bureau within the State Department, to adjust their local networks due to the refugee admission ceiling of 30,000. This means that, again, national agencies will have to make very difficult decisions to close more local programs. No final decisions have yet been made, and it would be premature to speculate about which local offices will be affected. The number one priority for the national agencies is the well-being of refugees who have already been resettled, as well as the ability to welcome refugees in the future. We really hope you'll stay in touch with us, sign up for our newsletters, join the Episcopal Public Policy Network, which Lacey will talk about later, and you'll be able to find links to these items either in the webinar follow-up or in the podcast notes. Now, to return to why we're gathered together today, Despite the government's policies and the low number of refugees arriving to our country, there is much work to be done. Now is not the time to retreat from our commitment to welcoming refugees as our newest neighbors. Now is the time to expand our understanding of what welcome means, to dig in our heels, and to welcome as never before. In the past two years and at present and continuing on for the near future, we're going to see very low refugee arrivals to this country. And if you've tuned into any of our previous webinars or if you've listened to our podcasts over the last few years, you've previously heard us talking about how important it is to reach out to your nearest local resettlement agency to learn what you can do to co-sponsor a family. Now, it's not that that's unimportant. We still want you to. We want you to reach out to those local organizations and learn what you can do to help. But you also need to realize that the numbers of refugees coming into the country is very low. And so opportunities to greet families at the airport and set up apartments are dwindling as well. So if there's anything you take away from today's discussion, let it be this. We need to stand strong and welcome in new and creative in a variety of ways more than ever before. In the face of anti-immigrant and anti-refugee rhetoric and policies, we must hold fast to our values and to the command of the gospel to welcome and care for the stranger, the widow, 
and the orphan in their distress. We must stand together to welcome. Over the turbulent last two years, EMM has worked hard with our friends and our supporters to conceive of welcome in new ways. And to do that, we've worked hard to focus not on the negative, but instead to turn our focus to the strengths, the resilience, and the gifts already present in our communities and in those whom we welcome. This is a challenging moment, but we will get through it together. We use the principles of asset-based community development to look at our communities and our work with new lenses. Instead of starting from a needs-based place, looking at all the problems, we start by looking at assets, at the gifts and strengths already present. We believe that individuals, groups, and communities have the God-given gifts that they need to address the needs they see around them. As author and researcher Brene Brown says, the opposite of scarcity is not abundance, it's enough. We know we have enough to live into our call to welcome in new ways. These ideas are the foundation of Call to Transformation, an asset-based approach to engaging church and community, which is a joint effort of the Episcopal Church and Episcopal Relief and Development. Call to Transformation is again centered around the belief that we have what we need to serve our communities, to address the needs around us. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us that each of us are given different gifts to serve the community and that we are all a part of the body of Christ working together. The tools of Call to Transformation are publicly and freely available at calltotransformation.org. And countless groups across the Episcopal Church and other communities as well have been using these tools to inspire and galvanize their ministries and action. There are really some great activities available here, things like gifts, discernment, asset mapping, learning conversations, and more. And we really hope that if you're trying to organize a group locally to respond to the needs you see around you, to take action for refugees and immigrants, that you'll use the tools present at Call to Transformation to take those first steps. An important piece of asset-based community development is including those whom you wish to serve and welcome or assist. You need to include them in discussions, in asset mapping, and in gifts discernment because they have gifts and assets and strengths as well. Bring them to the table. See what everyone has to offer. And from there, start to make your plan of action. Asset-based community development is, in a way, a shifting of a paradigm or a way of seeing the world around you. Do you see needs or opportunities? Do you see what's lacking? or what's already there. Shifting the way that you, your ministry, your congregation, your community see reality also means changing the way you talk about that reality. It's about leading others to see strengths and gifts and enough as well. This shift in thinking helps lift us up out of paralysis and fear or feelings of inadequacy into motivation and action. This paradigm shift that we nurture through ABCD thinking, asset-based community development, is connected to how we communicate and talk about the world around us. And it's connected to reframing messages and starting new narratives. So for that, I'm going to turn it over to Kendall to talk to us about the power 
of positive messaging and how you need to be agents of positive messaging in your local communities too. Kendall? Today, I want to briefly talk to you about the importance of messaging and how we approach the frames that are set by the media, by politicians, friends, family, etc. As those who support and welcome refugees, it's important for us to take note of the frames that are being set by the various groups about the very people we call our neighbors and friends. We have the power to shift those frames, and it's an important part of the work we do as advocates and educators on behalf of the Refugee Resettlement Program. So a quick definition for you. Frames are sets of choices about how information is presented. It's what we emphasize, how, how it's explained, what's left unsaid. And this is where we make choices about how we use data in our arguments, how we position statistics with stories, and this is where we decide whether our emphasis when we explain our support for refugees is on the struggle that refugees are leaving behind, or whether we emphasize the positive contributions and successes that refugees find here in the United States. So first, I want us to look at the historical narrative around refugees to better understand the position that we find ourselves in today. Even as Americans had access to reliable information about the Nazi persecution of Jews as it was happening, many could not imagine that a mass murder campaign of that scale was truly possible. While most Americans sympathized with European Jews, assisting refugees didn't become a national priority. Facts like unemployment and national security, combined with prevalent anti-Semitism and racism, shaped the American response to Nazism and the willingness to assist Jewish refugees. The focus was on military victory rather than humanitarian aid. The economic devastation of the Great Depression, coupled with deeply held prejudices against immigrants, informed the lack of aid from the Roosevelt administration. Propaganda stoked the fear and insecurity already felt by the American public and posed Jews as other and as a threat to American security. So flash forward to today, the frame being set by the media through images and stories depicts very specific narratives. Refugees are often depicted as either desperate people or people who are coming to this country to kill us, terrorists sneaking in through the guise of the refugee program. Ideas are presented that real Americans reject immigrants and refugees and anyone who is other. And if we were really patriots of our country, we would know better and would reject them. These are the same sentiments that were used to turn away Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis. It's a fear-based frame that works effectively today on those who aren't educated about the program or who have already made up their mind based on their own racism, fear, or belief system. The political voices capitalized on those fears, which has contributed to an increased amount of xenophobia by the public. This misrepresentation undermines refugees' stories, and it makes it harder for them to find acceptance and community. The frames being set before refugees enter our country affect the way they're able to transition and be accepted in their communities. When we can show positive images and share transformation stories about how a refugee's life has been changed and how our communities are positively impacted when refugees are given opportunity and safety, we have the chance to change the narrative. The work of reframing perceptions of refugees is to build an association between the people that we know who have resettled here in the U.S., and the lives that they are building here, rather than an abstract idea of the refugee as other. We can help the people in our communities make the same associations that we have. Yes, 
we see and understand the struggles and hardships that our refugee neighbors and friends have experienced, but we also see the triumph and the joy. We see how they have overcome so many obstacles and how they enrich the fabric of our communities, our congregations, our schools, our businesses, and our country. And when we're able to reframe the issue and tell those stories of hope and joy and the richness of our diversity, we're able to show how welcoming and supporting refugees is another way that we can build stronger communities together. One thing we do know is that people do not respond solely to facts and statistics that counter what they already believe. People have likely already done the research to find the statistics that back up their currently held opinions and beliefs, something called confirmation bias. However, when we touch on people's emotions through our shared values, then we have a chance to change hearts and minds. One way to be an effective advocate and ally to our refugee neighbors and friends is to use our voice. One way to do that is through writing a letter to the editor, to respond to an article or editorial, or by writing an op-ed. A few key questions to ask of yourself before you start writing are, one, what are you arguing for? Two, why is this relevant right now? Three, what is your unique perspective? And lastly, what change do you want to see? These questions provide a great starting place. The general guidelines of either piece are to be clear about what you wish to express, to educate your audience but not preach at them, and to be timely. As things continually unfold in the world of refugee resettlement, respond with a letter or an op-ed to your local paper as soon as the news hits. There are various methods of persuasion that work well in either writing piece that include writing from personal experience, expanding on an expert opinion, giving a solid example or analogy that backs up your opinion or statement, using facts and statistics on top of an emotional appeal, appealing to the reader's logic, and of course using emotion within the framework of shared values. We encourage you to reach out to us at EMM and OGR for assistance in writing a piece. We are always happy to help guide you and encourage you to speak out. And finally, I want to leave you with three questions to ponder as you explore whether the best format for you is to write an op-ed piece, a blog post, a letter to the editor, a piece in the bulletin at your church, or write a piece for your diocese, is how can you personally reframe the narrative? What story do you have to tell, and where and how do you tell it? Telling stories, sharing your experiences and relationships with refugees resettled in your community, and speaking out for welcome are powerful ways for you to engage in the work of advocacy. And now I'm going to turn it over to Lacey to give you some updates in the world of advocacy. Thank you so much, Kendall. I appreciate it. As I said in the introduction, my name is Lacey Bromell, and I'm the Refugee and Immigration Policy Advisor for the Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations. Today, I will share how and why the Episcopal Church advocates. I'll share some of the latest policy issues related to refugees and asylum seekers, and then I'll give you information on how you can best be an advocate in your community. So first, what is the Office of Government Relations, also known as OGR? The Episcopal Church's Office of Government Relations aims to shape and influence policy and legislation on critical issues at the federal level, highlighting the voices and experiences of Episcopalians and Anglicans globally. All of our work is grounded in the resolutions of General Convention and Executive Council, 
which are the governing bodies of the Episcopal Church. OGR also equips Episcopalians in the work of advocacy through the Episcopal Public Policy Network, a grassroots network of Episcopalians around the country. Through the Episcopal Public Policy Network, or the EPPN, we educate Episcopalians to equip them to take action to contact their members of Congress about an issue. We do this through sending action alerts via email. We offer webinars such as this one, write blogs, and offer other types of resources as well. But a question that we often hear is, why should Episcopalians be engaged in advocacy in the first place? And I'd like to point to two reasons today why we as the Office of Government Relations engage in advocacy and why um, you as a person of faith should and can engage in advocacy. So first, we understand advocacy to be a biblical and Christian imperative, and we believe it can be thought of as a way to become a stronger disciple of Christ, to live into your baptismal covenant to strive for justice and peace to also work on evangelism, as our presiding bishop calls us to do. And presiding bishop Curry has said that evangelism is not necessarily about building a bigger church and having more people show up in the pews on Sunday, but it's about building a better world. So we aim to help our country develop laws which more closely reflect God's dream for the dignity of every person. A second reason that we engage in advocacy is because the federal government has authority that no other entity has. That is to say, if we want to have influence or engage in certain ministries, we must engage with the federal government. And refugee resettlement is an excellent example. There are thousands of Episcopalians engaged in the ministry of refugee resettlement, like those of you who are listening today. But the federal government, specifically the president, determines if and how many refugees are allowed into the United States each year. Without a refugee resettlement program that hinges on the approval and um, impacts of the federal government, these ministries would be gravely impacted, as you all know and have probably experienced over the past two years yourself. So we have to make sure that we're influencing the decision makers that impact our direct service ministries. And with all that in mind, let's take a look at the latest policies related to refugees, asylum seekers, and immigrants. And then we'll talk about how we can influence, the, influence these policies now. So to start with the U.S. Refugee Admissions Program, also known as Refugee Resettlement. The U.S. Refugee Admissions Program is an intricate and complex process that screens refugees overseas, and then resettles them to new communities in partnership with resettlement agencies like Episcopal Migration Ministries and the local um, NGOs that you all work with and faith groups like yourselves. And this program has seen significant changes under this current administration. The primary change we have seen is in the number of refugees who are being admitted um, each year. Last fiscal year, as you can see on the screen, less than 23,000 refugees were resettled, even though the refugee admission ceiling, the, that number that the president sets each year, was 45,000. And this year, the president has set the admissions number at 30,000, 
which is the lowest ceiling in the history of the program. And this has had a devastating impact on families seeking to reunite through the refugee resettlement program, on religious minorities who are fleeing religious persecution, on individuals who have served with U.S. troops abroad in Afghanistan and Iraq and who are now in danger because of their service, and on vulnerable persons like children and those with severe medical needs who are in need of resettlement. Further, these low numbers are a complete departure from the history of the program. The refugee admissions number that's set each year by the president had never been set below 70,000 until this current administration. And the average actual admitted number of refugees each year has been around 95,000. Whereas again, last year we saw that the number was 23,000 refugees. And just as we have seen policies to slash the number of refugees being admitted for resettlement from overseas, we have seen a number of restrictive policies toward asylum seekers and immigrants at our border or those who are legally already in the United States. And just very quickly, what's the difference between a refugee and asylum seeker? This is a question we get all the time, and it's, it's simple, and that is what sort of makes it complex. So unlike refugees who apply for protection while they're still in their home country, asylum seekers must be on American soil or present themselves at the border or at a port of entry to immigration officials in order to claim asylum. And it is legal, I want to emphasize, under U.S. and international law to seek asylum. So the differences between refugee and asylum seeker really go to where that person seeks and receives protection in the first place. Refugees are overseas and undergo a screening process and then a, a, a very intricate system to be placed with an agency like EMM and then are placed in new communities, whereas asylum seekers either present themselves at the border or are already in the United States. And then once asylum seekers present themselves and apply for asylum and wait for their case to be heard, many of them are either detained or they live in the United States with an ankle monitor and with requirements to check in regularly with immigration officials. And if you have questions about that, happy to answer them at the end. But some of the policies that I want to mention today that we've seen, restrictive policies towards asylum seekers and immigrants, include one, attempts to shut the border um, and to restrict asylum seekers from presenting themselves at the border and not at um, and not we're trying to restrict them from seeking protection anywhere along the border and just restricting them to only seeking protection at a port of entry. Whereas under U.S. law and as a court um, upheld, asylum seekers can present themselves anywhere along the border. But that is currently um, under uh, is, is under the courts. The second issue that we've seen is a policy of family separation as deterrence, an attempt to tell people that they should not and cannot come here. We've also seen attempts to remove legal status from large immigrant populations, such as DREAMers or those with temporary protected status, or TPS, leaving them vulnerable to deportation and family separation. And with both of these, the administration has um, attempted to remove these statuses and are largely on hold right now in the court. And so these individuals currently have these statuses, 
but it is tenuous and there's not a final say about whether these persons with either DACA, which are DREAMers, or with TPS will be able to stay. Um, and of course, we're urging that Congress would pass long-term um, comprehensive legislation that would offer a pathway to citizenship for these individuals. And then the final thing that I'll mention today is a current proposed rule that would expand the list of public benefits that would um, prohibit legal immigrants from qualifying for entry into the United States or for permanent residency. This, comment, this proposed rule is currently open for comments until de December 10th, and we'll be sending an action alert about it tomorrow so you can make your voice heard um, on this issue if you would like to. But there is something to be done about all of this. As constituents and individuals invested in the care and dignity of all persons, we have to utilize our power and our stories to ensure that decision makers promote and maintain our nation's admirable tradition of refugee resettlement, asylum, and welcome. Advocacy is necessary in this moment. So how can you best be an advocate right now? When I talk about advocacy, I like to use uh, Go Cubs. I don't know if we have any baseball fans on the line, um, but if you can go ahead and click and bring it up, um, we'll talk through what this stands for. Go Cubs. So first, C, come prepared. A strong advocate is a well-informed advocate. So do your research on these issues. You. Use your story. Use your story to make your point. Because as Kendall said, while statistics can be shock factors, stories find a way of lodging themselves in our minds in a way that statistics don't. B, build relationships. Build relationships with other faith groups in your community, with refugees and immigrants in your community, and with your elected officials, because collaboration is a key to change. And this B is really a great way to bring in your asset-based community development work. And then finally, S, start change. Advocacy is really a long-term commitment. Progress can be slow, so remember to be gentle with yourself, but be consistent and persistent. So go Cubs. And as you keep that Cubs framework in mind, being prepared, doing your research, using your story, building relationships and doing things in a collaborative way. And as you're starting to make these changes and maybe to step out if you're, you're new to advocacy, um, here are some ideas of what being an advocate is. Of course, first, writing an op-ed or a letter to the editor on an issue for your local paper telling your story. This is exactly what Kendall was talking about, and it's about informing the narrative. So while you can also be shaping the narrative and responding to a news piece, you can also be informing your neighbors and the people in your community and your elected officials that you're invested in this program. Second, you can hold a vigil or a community event. A community-wide vigil with prayers and speakers is a way to publicly demonstrate support for refugees. A vigil can show refugees that they're welcomed in your community, and it's also a great way to show elected officials that their constituents are eager and proud to welcome refugees. And educational events or discussions can be a great way to get the community on board and build public support on the issue, especially if you're just starting at the beginning. 
And then, of course, write and call your elected officials regularly. This is about building relationships. Elected officials have staff members responsible for reading, reporting on, and responding to mail and calls from constituents. You can write your own letter or share a sample letter with your elected officials to support refugees. At the EPPN, we have sample letters for you on our website that we encourage you to modify and tell your story, and you can send it directly to your elected officials as you do so. And then finally, hold an in-person meeting with your elected official. Meetings are probably the number one way to fully get a member's attention. And even if you can't meet with your members of Congress, meet with their staff. All members of Congress have district offices, so they should be in your community or very close by. You don't have to come to D.C. if you want to do a meeting with your member of Congress and their staff. And we have more details about the logistics of how to email, how to even offer and ask for such a meeting, how to write that op-ed that we'll be releasing in the toolkit that I mentioned that's in your handout section in this webinar, but we'll also be releasing them online. But the main takeaway, the final thing I want to leave with you is that if you feel frustrated that your community isn't resettling refugees or if you feel angry that a child with a need for surgery now won't be able to resettled to be resettled and have that life-saving operation, and if you think that runs counter to Jesus's way of love, then you should make sure that your elected officials know that. You have the power and you have the opportunity, and I believe that you have the responsibility to make your voice heard as a disciple and as an advocate to change this. And now I'm going to turn it back to Allison and Kendall to begin our question and answer period. Thank you. Thanks so much, Lacey. So all of you here today for the webinar, you can type in your questions in the chat box or the questions pane. You can also email them to me at aduval at episcopalchurch.org and we'll field them. We have a few to get us started. Um, one that I'm really interested in, Lacey, is how the, the new Congress the incoming Congress in January will start to impact um, refugee resettlement policy and, and immigration and how what you see coming down the pipe. Oh, that's a good question. Um, so a couple of things with that is um, one to speak very frankly is that we lost um, some several really strong Republican supporters of refugee resettlement. They lost their elections. So they will no longer be there. So again, we'll be going back to those basics, to the B of Cubs. We'll be building relationships right away with all new members of Congress to make sure that they understand the logistics of refugee resettlement, to make sure that they know that people in their communities, faith groups like us, like Episcopalians, are actively engaged in resettlement and, and wanting to do more. Um, so we'll be building those relationships and trying to build back uh, the bipartisan support, which we really saw in a great way, um, this Congress, and to make sure that that continues. And then I think also what we'll be seeing with now the um, House is um, majority Democrat, is that we'll be seeing probably some more oversight and questions about why are refugee resettlement numbers so low? Why did we not even meet half of the number that was set out by the president in terms of resettled refugees last fiscal year. What's going on with that? Um, which I think will hopefully be helpful to get some answers and maybe we'll bring to light some of the concerns that we've had about changes to the program. 
And in looking at some other questions, and we encourage you, if you're on the line, you can enter questions through the chat box or through the question pane. Um, I see that somebody has a question that says, are there any nonprofit um, secular Episcopal slash Christian organizations that you might already be working with in different parts of the country? Um, this person is from San Antonio, so they have some examples of groups that they work for um, locally. So looking for existing places to volunteer. I'll speak to Episcopal Migration Ministries, um, our existing network of resettlement partners. You heard me say at the beginning of the webinar that at the end of 2016, we had 31 local partners. We're down to 14 now. Um, some of the other national agencies have likewise seen their their networks of local partners um, decrease in the face of the policy changes. But there are still organizations all across the country who do work in refugee resettlement, or perhaps they did. They might have lost um, that program because of what's been going on at the policy level. But there's organizations all across the country working with refugees, new American communities, immigrants. Um, so if you want to look on our website to see our network of partners, we're EpiscopalMigrationMinistries.org. We'd really love for you to support all of our local resettlement partners. Um, but also, if you ha if you have any, um, if you need help making connections with other organizations doing work with other immigrant populations, we're happy to help you make those connections as well. And we'll have our contact information available at the end of the today's presentation. It is excellent to, as Allison started off by saying, doing an assessment of the gifts that are already existing in your community. So the person that wrote this question already had some exam great examples of groups that are um, working Somos Humanos, Raices, and others. So see what groups are already doing this work in your community and then ask and do an assessment of where your church group or where your particular church um, could pitch in and then offer that. Maybe they need a meeting space on Sunday nights or Monday nights for their meetings and you've got a great church hall. Uh, maybe they do need a donation drive. Of course, donations aren't always, always the fix for everybody, but maybe one particular group does need it. Maybe you have a lot of lawyers in your church and maybe a group needs some pro bono work. So think think about and, and really get creative about ways to partner and, and, and really uplift the groups that are already doing this work. And then I'm going to ask, I see one other question um, for Kendall, actually, that gets into um, more about the op-eds that you mentioned. So where is the best place if I'm going to try to do an op-ed and if I want to draft this, how long should it be and where's the best place for me to, to place it and how do I figure out how to even connect there? Absolutely. So I think the best place to start is with your local paper. Um, so any of the local papers that you read, you'll be able to find information either in the paper or on their website about their protocol for how to submit an op-ed or submit a letter to the editor. They always have a full description on what the word count should be, how they want it submitted. Um, and in the toolkit that we've offered, I've provided a few links, and one is for a group called the Op-Ed Project, and they actually have a link to every major newspaper in the country, so you could also submit it to other large papers, and that gives you specific details on how to submit to all of them. Um, the site also gives you a really good outline of how to write an op-ed, some key points. So I would really point you to that link um, for all the information you could possibly need to get started there. And again, I would also encourage you to reach out to us if you need any help. Um, and I would also say to tune in to next week's 
webinar uh, where we talk with West Virginia Interfaith Refugee Ministry because they've done some great, great media work. Um, they've engaged through um, news channels, um, all types of media, and they're going to be really good to ask how to get started, how it's worked, um, and what their experience has been. Very cool. That sounds like an amazing resource. And I will just say that we always get really excited when we see that Episcopalians have op-eds or letter to the editors on this, and, and we lift it up through our social media networks, and it's always just really exciting. Sometimes it's as simple as, you know, this was the experience my church had, and it was life-giving, and it really can be something like that, and, and I think that's pretty neat. Um, so one other question is, um, has anyone had experience with talking to refugees in our Episcopal churches about homosexuality? We find this subject is not uh, is just not talked about. Um, but some of us would like to respectfully broach the subject. So Allison, would you like to pitch in and maybe see if you have thoughts on that? And I encourage folks if you if you do have an answer, you are welcome to respond in the chat function or in the in the um, question and answer box. But Allison, go ahead. Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, there are a lot of different things that are present in, you know, American national conversation and culture that are very new for any newcomer to this country. And there is a um, an enormous number of resources within the refugee resettlement world around cultural orientation. And these will be things like financial literacy, but also the American healthcare system. Um, I actually was able to sit in on a cultural orientation class in Lexington, Kentucky, where um, they had separated the class by gender, but there were some really incredible trainers from the medical community who came in to talk about sexual health. Um, so I don't know that they went into the topic of homosexuality in those classes, but I know that practitioners who work day, day in, day out on cultural orientation and on speaking about these sensitive issues with newcomer communities, um, they're just stellar. Um, the Center for uh, Applied Linguistics um, previously held the contract with the federal government to do cultural orientation programming. That's a, a requirement of the resettlement program. So I would commend to you the Center for Applied Linguistics to see um, what existing cultural orientation curricula they have available on their websites. Um, and I honestly don't remember um, which organization is doing that work currently. And I do not know off the top of my head if they have curricula or best practices for discussing um, sexual health and homosexuality. Um, but, but I would imagine some resources are out there and I would also commend you to local organizations that do cultural orientation work with refugee communities, um, because they, they are, um, important in, um, just the larger public health conversation as well around those topics. Excellent. Thanks so much. Um, we have a question that says, can you tell us something about what motivated you to get involved in this work? And was there someone or something in your personal background that influenced you? Kendall, do you want to start? Yeah, certainly. Um, I would say that um, I learned about Episcopal Migration Ministries working at the Diocese of Virginia, and I was motivated to get involved in this work um, actually after attending a workshop that Allison Duvall led um, where I learned about this amazing ministry that our church is involved in and how important it is and how it really is what we are called to do in this world and who we are called to be. Um, and I felt a responsibility to get involved in this work. Um, and it's certainly a way that I live out my faith. I agree that I'll just quickly say, cause I know we're running out of question and answer time that um, for me, it's been a very important part of 
exactly what you just said of how I live my faith and how I'm, um, you know, sort of consider myself as a follower of Jesus in the world is by um, living out the the love God, love neighbor. Um, that's something that's in, in, incredibly important to me and it really continues to inspire me um, to be involved. Um, there is a question about um, expanding on the um, the public charge issue that I mentioned about those applying for permanent residency in the United States. So what I was talking about is, so public charge is currently um, on under U.S. law, immigrants who are either applying for a visa overseas to enter the United States or who are have a visa and are looking to adjust their status to get a green card or become a legal permanent resident. Uh, those individuals are subject to what's called a public charge determination. And that assesses a number of things, um, basically to see if that person will become primarily dependent on uh, federal uh, benefits. But this administration in October released a new rule that would adjust this. Um, and this would um, really change the public charge determination and actually names some specific um some specific ways in terms of things that people would use, such as um, SNAP, which is um, food assistance, or certain types of Medicaid and Medicare and housing assistance, um, and would also change the um, the income threshold for an individual. So it really heightens the bar um, in terms of individuals who are applying either for an immigrant visa overseas or looking to adjust their status in the United States in terms of um, in terms of their their income and you know what they would rely on. And so the Episcopal Church will be submitting a comment. We do have a general convention resolution that says that um, immigrants should not be denied. Uh, public benefits, and that also we see that this would be essentially an income uh, test for individuals who are trying um, to enter the United States and contribute, and that we know that um, many people, whether you are um, legally, you know, whether you're an immigrant or not, and I should note that the people, immigrants who are using these benefits are legally, they're legally eligible for them. Um, but most people use this for temporary things. If you lose a job or you're in between a job or, um, you know, your income is just not enough uh, to cover certain health care benefits. So the um, rule, as I said, it's not finalized. It's a public um it's open for public comments and the comments are due on December 10th, which is next Tuesday. Um, and so we would encourage you to write a comment if you'll sign up and at this end of the, um, webs at the end of the webinar, we'll share the website, but advocacy.episcopalchurch.org is where you can, um, find information to submit a comment. And we've got a draft comment for you that can go directly from our site to the, to the government to comment on this rule and learn more about it. Sure, and we're going to start wrapping up our Q&A, but Allison, I'm going to um, throw this question to you. Um, so it says, I thought you worked through Lutheran Services and Catholic Charities in Northern Virginia. Oh, sure. So we actually, sadly, don't have any formal partners in Virginia. And when I say formal, I mean organizations with whom we hold resettlement contracts. Um, so sadly, we're, we don't work in the, in the Commonwealth of Virginia, but we do have colleague agencies that do. So those two organizations that were just named, um, I know Church World Service has affiliates in Virginia, the uh, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, the International Rescue Committee, they do resettlement work in Virginia. But sadly, we don't have um, a formal partnership in that Commonwealth. 
Um, and then to transition us out um, to some follow-up items, I did want to also offer why I was, um, I think, initially inspired to be involved in this work. When my um, when I was a young child, I think I might have been four or five, my family partnered with others at my, co- at my church to co-sponsor a family of refugees who had fled Bosnia. And the mother in the family, who was elderly, um, kind of took me under her wing. We couldn't, we obviously couldn't speak to one another. She couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak Bosnian. Um, but she kind of decided I was her like American granddaughter. So she would make skirts for me and blouses that we we still have. Um, we've held on to those for years. And so I think when I was a young child and my church helped a family resettle, it just kind of wedged itself in my brain that this is what we do as Christians, as people of faith. We we welcome people who are um, who are in need of our welcome. Um, so that's where I got started. But we're, what we're going to do now is give you some um, items for follow up. We do hope you'll stay in touch with us. Um, so let me get my slides to advance. Um, we would be remiss if we left this opportunity um, sitting on the table, not to tell you how you can support our ongoing work. Um, as you heard throughout the webinar, policy changes have been devastating for the infrastructure of resettlement across the country. They've impacted EMM, but we still need your help. We resettle folks all across the country, and we really need you to partner with us. Um, the need is great, and now the more than ever, we really need you to make those donations. Um, we didn't talk about our history on this webinar today, but welcoming welcoming refugees has always been a ministry of the whole church. We actually began this work back in the 1930s, more than 80 years ago, when local parishes were collecting donations to help pay for the travel for refugees who were fleeing Europe. We've met great need with great love before we're doing it now. We need you to stand with us so we can do it to the very best of our ability. And this is really our shared ministry as Episcopalians. Together we can live into the holy and biblical call from Christ to welcome the stranger and to serve the least of these. And with your help, we will continue to welcome refugees to a place of safety and welcome. So stand for welcome today. One of those ways you can do that is by making a gift to Episcopal Migration Ministries. And there are many ways you can join us in supporting the ministry of the entire church. You can give securely online at episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash give. You can text EMM to 41444, or you can make a credit or debit card gift over the phone by calling 1-800-334-7626, extension 6271, or you can ask for special gift envelopes to be mailed to you. And we want to thank you in advance for these gifts that do so much. We do hope you'll stay in touch with EMM and the EPPN. There are so many ways to connect with us. So this webinar series has two more presentations in it. Um, as one of my colleagues, I can't remember if it was Lacey or Kendall that said it, but next week we're joining with West Virginia Interfaith Refugee Ministry to talk about their journey to welcome. They're an inspiring group. They've overcome great hardship um, and they're in it for the long term. Um, just like Lacey said, advocacy work, all of this work is long term work. Um, So please do join us to learn about West Virginia Interfaith Refugee Ministry on December 13th at 4 p.m. You can register and receive the follow-up materials, including the recording, if you can't be there for the live presentation. And then also, please join us on December 18th, where we talk about Partners in Welcome joining us on the way, about some new engagement programs that EMM is launching in 2019 that we would love for you to be part of.
We also have an epiphany curriculum for adult Christian formation that's available now. We wrote one for lectionary year B, which was 2018. We've just written one for lectionary year C, 2019, and that is available at the link on your screen. It's long, and we will follow up with it in the email and put it in the podcast notes so you can request this free resource. And we invite you to listen to EMM's hometown podcast, where you'll hear interviews with men and women resettled to the U.S. as refugees, history and current events surrounding the forced displacement crisis, and reflections from across the church. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play. And you can also find episodes and additional material on our blog, episcopalmigrationministries.org forward slash blog. And we encourage you to join the Episcopal Public Policy Network if you aren't already to stay informed about immigration and refugee policies and receive ways to directly communicate your care and concern on these issues to your elected officials. That's the Episcopal Public Policy Network and our website is advocacy.episcopalchurch.org. We want to thank you all so much for joining us today, whether you're a webinar guest or part of our podcast audience. Please stay in touch with us. You can find Episcopal Migration Ministries on our website, episcopalmigrationministries.org, and we are on social media at EMM Refugees, and all of our video content is on our Vimeo channel, vimeo.com forward slash EMM Refugees. And then as Lacey said, the Episcopal Public Policy Network is advocacy.episcopalchurch.org, and you can follow them on social media at VEPPN. So thank you all so much for being here. We do hope to that you'll be in touch with us. You'll certainly be hearing from us. And we wish you a blessed Advent. Take care and goodbye.